It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. My recollection was just grabbing the paper and looking at the cover and seeing We Will Win Tonight and just kind of laughing and shaking my head and and Mark laughing too. And he said, yep, we're in it now, aren't we? Uh, that Mark Messier, of course, uh, that's what they're talking about when he talks about uh, that Mark. And that is our next guest. Uh, Mark Messier, Hall of Fame hockey player, six-time Stanley Cup champion, author of a brand-new book called No One Wins Alone. Uh, no one wins alone, and that was Brian Leach, his longtime friend, and I uh, lived very close to each other in uh, in New York City during their days with the Rangers together. Mark Messier, uh, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, Brian Leach, one of my favorite players of all time. Uh, great memories. Uh, great to be on with you. Hey, uh, Mark, do you, are you guys still in touch? Oh, of course. Uh, like I said, Brian and I became so close playing here in New York, uh, living in the city, and driving back and forth to games and practices over the years. And, of course, Sharon and the Stanley Cup, uh, we're, uh, we're soulmates for life now. So um, I always thought in my lifetime, um, and covering sports, my first job was sports phone. You probably were with the Oilers at the time, 976-1313, before even all sports radio coming out of school. I always thought, even before you came to the Rangers, uh, you're probably the greatest leader in sports in your era. In fact, the first uh, autographed frame picture I got from my son who's now 24 was you uh, because oh. I just said that is what a leader is I didn't you know you were one of the best but it didn't matter you made everybody better you cared about other people and they wanted to win for you I'm not sure how you did that but wherever you want that was the story they wanted to play great for you have you had a chance to reflect on that and is that what we see in this book well, thank you for those kind words. I, I, I'm not sure if they wanted to win for me, but I think what the the idea was is to make everybody feel good about themselves, inspire everybody to be the best, uh, you know. And you know, and then of course uh, share a vision, share a dream, um, and then you know go on the day to day journey of trying to accomplish winning a Stanley Cup. And I think everybody believed in what we're trying to accomplish, in the way we're going to try to accomplish it, and Everybody felt that anything less than their best wasn't going to be good enough, and you just—that's <laughs> how it starts. And you know, we gained some momentum through the regular season, and ultimately, and through the playoffs, and, and then, of course, the groundswell of uh, excitement through the city uh, helped us uh, in those two game sevens against uh, you know New Jersey and Vancouver. But uh, you know, I think it, uh, as the book says, no one wins alone. That's the most important uh, concept in, in team sports is that it takes everybody in order to be successful. Absolutely, and you could appreciate that. See, you weren't one of those superstar guys that didn't care about the last guy in the roster. You cared about everybody, and that's where that came from, um, in my humble opinion. I saw the end of the Islander dynasty and the rise of the Oiler dynasty, and I remember they took it to you one year. Uh, uh, they swept you with the first time you played them in Stanley Cup, and the next year you took them out and would knock them out for, I think, t- the next 20 years. They would obviously not be the same team, be able to rebuild with bad management, bad owners from there on in. What did you learn in observing the Islanders during those years that helped you ever since? Well, the Islanders were such a great team. I mean, he, he, you know, 
obviously much harder to do what they did now. But even then, it wasn't easy uh, to have a dynasty like the Islanders. They were so such a complete team. They had grit and determination. They had skill and artistry. They had great coaching, great management. They were connected in every way. They were experienced. Uh, you know, they they had everything. Um, and like I said before, when when you win a championship, it it changes you. It changes every person. It changes the team. It changes the organization and the culture. When you win multiple Stanley Cups, uh, the knowledge that you have over the rest of the league is, uh, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to monitor or it's hard to measure uh, because of what you've learned and and knowing what you're capable of and when you're pushed to the limits and that you're able to, you know, push harder, jump higher, reach further. So I, you know, for us, you know, the the Islanders became a huge measuring stick, obviously, and and. I guess unfortunately for us that we we had to play the Islanders in, in three different playoff series through that through their cup run and uh, ultimately uh, were able to beat them on their way to their fifth Stanley Cup but uh, wow uh, so much respect for them the team the players and I don't think the Oilers are the Oilers without the uh, Islanders which is uh, true and Mark of course you Kevin Lowe uh, Wayne Gretzky would play forever Grant Fuhr would play forever But it seemed to me, I know you guys came from the WHA as a franchise. It seemed to me that you guys were cocky. Uh, There was a sense that you guys were having fun. And then you knew you were great. Um, And in a way, it seemed to me from the outside perspective, from the New York perspective, which you gradually would see from, uh, to the Canadian perspective, is like, I I got the sense that you did not, you thought you guys were going to take that series. Well, first of all, I, I think we were perceived as being cocky because we were having a good time. We were winning. We were enjoying ourselves. And, and I think as a professional athlete at 18, 19, 20, 21, if you're not having a good time, there's something wrong. <laughs> so, so I, But I think we were a little bit different in, in the fact uh, that we were starting to change the way teams conducted themselves and carried themselves and you kind of moving away from the you know, the staunch kind of establishment of, of what NHL players and coaches and, um, you know, were back then. Of course, we had a lot of flair, you know, with Wayne Gretzky, the greatest player to ever play the game, and, and, our, and the style of play that we played uh, was, um, you know, exciting. It was kind of uh, a lot of flair and artistry and, and of course, our coach, uh, you know, was very confident and, you know, we started to take on a bit of a, a swagger, if you will, but I think it was it was confidence. We had a lot of respect for our opponents. We had a lot of respect for you know the NHL and everything right. that that it stood for. But uh, you know, if it was perceived as cocky, it certainly didn't feel like that way on, on our part. So here's how your first cup sounded: cut, uh, cut fifty-five. Number 11, winner of the Conn Fight Trophy as the most valuable player in the playoffs. 1984, your thoughts? <laughs> oh, man, that brings back so many amazing memories. Uh, you know, childhood dream come true. First Stanley Cup in my hometown, Edmonton. Uh, you know, uh, winning the Conn Smythe, uh, winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, oh, it, 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 it didn't get any better than that for for us. Uh, the people in Edmonton uh, yeah, who were huge you know, NHL fans, huge Montreal Canadian fans, huge Toronto Maple Leaf, the original six, and to see a Stanley Cup on our home 
you know, Northland's Coliseum uh, was just was remarkable, to be honest with you. So uh, the people listening to us now, especially the WABC listeners, remember Mark Messier uh, leading the New York Rangers to their first cup uh, since the World War II era. Here is Mark Messier's uh, hat trick against the Devils uh, to force a game seven. Cut 52. Bubble left to Messier. Messier shot. Score! They tied the game. Mark Messier. Leach drops it. Kovalev again. Save one goal. Rebound. Score! Mark Messier gets his second goal. The Rangers lead three to two. John McLean center for the empty net. Mark Messier. Do you believe it? He said we will win game six. He has just picked up the hat trick. <laughs> I mean, I get chills hearing that, and I heard it there. What if, is it, have you heard the broadcast before of that? I'm sure you have. I have, and it does, never gets old. It never will get old uh, to this day when people uh, thank me or, or tell me where they were during that that uh, playoff series in the Stanley Cup. It, uh, what were the circumstances, it just, Mark? Lay it out for us. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, the New Jersey Devils had, uh, you know, taken over the series lead. Uh, we had played them six times during the regular season and beat them all six times. So, um, But we found ourselves down 3-2 going into the Devils in the conference final. Uh, we needed to figure out a way to win. Uh, we needed to figure out a way to play better. Uh, we And the first step of doing that is believing you can go in there and win. So... I just wanted our our team to make sure that they knew that I believed we could win. And at that point of the season, the smallest things can make a difference. And right. if that was something that uh, we needed in order to uh, to go in there and play the kind of game we were going to have to in order to win, I was mm-hmm. certainly more than willing to uh, to take the risk. But the the idea was is to make sure that uh, we all knew that I believed that uh, we could go in and win. And I just want everyone to hear um... – what it was like when you go on to the finals and you win game seven after you were up 3-1, I believe, and you win game seven, cut 54. The waiting is over. The New York Rangers are the Stanley Cup champions, and this one will last a lifetime. So you've won them before. How is that different than the others? Well, it it was interesting, uh, you know, because of the – you know, the, my career in Edmonton, you know, with, with five Stanley Cups in seven years, six finals in eight years, um, you know, it was an amazing run with some of the best players ever played the game. Um, coming to New York, I was so thrilled to play, first of all, in New York City for an original six team. I loved the challenge of uh, playing for the Rangers, who hadn't won a Stanley Cup at that point at, in 51 years. And uh, sure enough, lo and behold, uh, three years later, we were uh, lifting the Stanley Cup in, in New York City. And I think one of the things that really made it so special were, uh, from my own perspective anyways, was understanding the passion behind uh, the New York Rangers, how many people had never seen a Stanley Cup, how many generations of fans who had talked about it with their sons and daughters and grandfathers and grandmothers and and uh, here we were. We were the team that was able to do that and uh, bring something that was really special to a lot of people's lives here in New York. And you can't go anywhere without people bringing it up and, and thanking you. And that's why you're, you're part of the fabric here, but also in sports. Mark, when you become – so you retire, you become a, a parent and a coach. And, and what were you able to bring to life in your 40s? Sooner or later, Kevin, even Tom Brady is going to have to deal with this. You have all these great accomplishments, but there's so much more life to live. And I'm, and this comes up in your book. 
were we able to to bring over to the rest of your life as a parent and even a youth coach? Well, I think that what that, what sports does is it gives us so many life lessons that uh, can you know reach beyond sport, the world of sport, um, discipline, um, you know, dedication, commitment, focus, um, you know, tolerance, patience understanding, uh, empathy, compassion. I mean, I mean, those are the emotions that you run through uh, when you're a player, when you're on a championship team. Those are the things that you're challenged with on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and in life in general, no matter, I think, what happens, uh, those same things apply. And I know myself personally, uh, you know, retiring and moving on to different endeavors and different things that I've gotten involved with, you know, all demanded the same kind of uh, things uh, from from you as a person, for me as a person. And I think the lessons learned uh, through hockey have helped me uh, enter into the, I would say, the uh, the business sector, uh, raising kids, uh, and anything else that I've done uh, since retirement. He was the 48th pick overall uh, by the Oilers, and I think they're happy they made that selection. I'm not sure. i got to get a statement from them. Um, but i got to bring you to the real world. We're watching another esteemed player, uh, Aaron Rodgers, go through a whole bunch of controversy about immunization. I want you to hear what he had to say. I just was curious where how you stood with this. Cut 21. I'm not some sort of anti-vax flat earther. I am somebody who's a critical thinker. I believe strongly in bodily autonomy and the ability to make choices for your body, not to have to acquiesce to some woke culture or a crazed group of individuals who say you have to do something. Health is not a one-size-fits-all for everybody. And for me, it involved a lot of study in the off-season, much like the study I put into Host in Jeopardy or the weekly study I put into playing in the game. I put a lot of time and energy and research and met with a lot of different people in the medical field. So he's trying to explain uh, from the elite athlete perspective how, and also how he prepares meticulously for everything he does. And now everyone's coming down on him in and out of sports. Where do you stand? In, and do you have a sense of what kind of decision you would make? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I can't speak for anybody in decisions they make. Uh, the greatest part about our country is that we have freedom of speech and we have the choices to do what we want. So... You know, having said that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I think that's the greatest gift that we have living where we do. And uh, we have cho- choices and there's consequences to your choices one way or another. But uh, at least we have a choice. Right. So, yeah, the whole vaccination and sports and how this bled into it and Kyrie um, uh, Irving not doing it. Do you ever think how you would handle that? I don't. I'm sorry, you did. You didn't. I I, I I haven't thought about it. No. Okay. Uh, all right, Mark. Just wanted to see uh, where you stood. Congratulations on the book. No one wins alone. Uh, it's a memoir. It is now out today. Uh, Mark Messier, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. You got it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I want to get him to weigh in. We'll see what happens there. Also, another great leader in sports. So. When we come back, I'll be able to take some of your calls to finish up uh, this hour and find out if there's a need to know more. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Kansas State University, the architect of perhaps the greatest coaching job of our generation, Coach Bill Snyder from Kansas State. He becomes only the fourth coach to earn induction into the College Football Hall of Fame while still actively leading a program joining Bobby Bowden, John Gallardi, and Joe Paterno. He holds a distinction as the winningest coach in Kansas State history, and he claims a spot as the 14th fastest coach in college football history to win 100 games. Two Big 12 championships, 16 of the school's 18 bowl appearances have come under the watch of Bill Snyder. Big 8 and Big 12 Coach of the Year combined seven times and finished in the top 20 a dozen times. Coach Bill Snyder, congratulations, now a member of the Hall of Fame. And no doubt about it, he was going there. Those accolades are tremendous, especially when you consider where Kansas State was before he got there. Bill Snyder's got his autobiography out. It's called My Football Life and the Rest of the Story. Uh, joining us now, uh, Kansas State superstar football coach, the former, uh, Bill Snyder. Uh, coach, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Brian. That's uh, very kind words. You guys read well. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. Uh, what was it like knowing that you earned every sentence in that introduction about your career? Is it? Can you help but reflect when that moment happens, you go in the Hall of Fame, and then people lift a, just rip off all your accomplishments? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's humbling, uh, no doubt about, uh, about that. But uh, I think what gets lost in the – you know, in the dialogue is, you know, it, it takes an awful lot of people to accomplish, you know, very positive things. And I've been fortunate and blessed to be around, you know, wonderful people in my life. And certainly here at Kansas State and a lot of wonderful young student athletes, uh, a lot of wonderful coaches and faculty members, uh, administration, et cetera, mm-hmm. and a fan base that uh, is second to none. So as good a coach as you are when you first took over Kansas State, uh, they were losing. But did you ask for commitments from the administration before you took over the program that gave you a chance to be successful? <laughs> well, <laughs> that is real. That's a story in its own. Uh, well, I, you know, I did. Uh, Steve Miller was our athletic director at the time, and he desperately wanted things to be right. And uh, he was uh, a very aggressive uh, athletic director. And uh, promised the world, <laughs> and and you know it was a very interesting story because you know he and and all, all I wanted was uh, you know things that would benefit the young people in our program. Right. And uh, there was uh, work being done, or I say work being done. I had requested that they uh, do some reconstruction in our. Uh, facility to benefit our players, you know, locker rooms and et cetera. And uh, so they started on it. And uh, one day uh, I could hear no construction work taking place. And I called our athletic director and I said, Steve, uh, they've stopped working. Uh, Anything wrong? Anything I can do? And he said, well, he said, we've run out of money. (laughs) And so that was, uh, that was kind of, uh, the nature of where Kansas State was at the time. Wow. I mean, they just really didn't have anything. But uh, uh, we found a wonderful uh, family that uh, put up some money. And I told him I'd pay for it. I didn't have any money. I didn't have enough, but I promised him I would I would take care of it. Uh, and that kind of embarrassed him. So he went out and uh, pounded the pavement and raised the money and 
then we got back on track again. Yeah. Didn't happen right away. Uh, September 30th, 1989 was your first win. Uh, you beat Kent, mm-hmm. North Texas, 2017. Here's how it sounded. Cut 32. Kansas State trailing 17-14. And here comes the final play of the game. The quarterback is straw. Takes the snap. Back to throw. North Texas rushing. Near side pass to Hernandez. He got it. He got it. He got it. Touchdown. 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 K-State. K-State wins. K-State wins. Touchdown on the final <laughs> play of the game to Hernandez. What it is. What it is. It's a big, 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 big touchdown. <laughs> Coach, what do you think? I heard you laughing through that. What were you thinking? Do you remember? Well, I was. I, yes. Uh, well, just now I was thinking about uh, the broadcaster. That's uh, <laughs> Mitch Holtus. You know, and Mitch is, uh, does the Kansas City Chiefs now, has been with them for quite some time. And he's uh, an amazing fellow and uh, and a very excitable announcer. But, uh, you know, I was thinking at the time uh, on the field, I, I was I was so excited for uh, our fan base, uh, I mean, there weren't very many people there, but every single one of them ended up on the field. I was uh, so happy for the young people that were in the program because not a single one of them had ever played in a ball game while they were at Kansas State University in which they had won. So that was their first victory of all time for them. So it was uh, it was. Uh, Again, kind of a humbling experience, but it was it was fun to watch right. and see the reactions of all those people that had suffered through so much. So as you start uh, turning this program around, there are certain wins that stand out. I imagine this one does. Uh, this is uh, your, your team defeats Nebraska for the first time since 19, between 1969 and 1997. You had not beaten them. Uh, and here is November 14th, 1998, how it sounded, cut 33. Routes in a shotgun, takes a snap, looks downfield, being rushed, gets hit, comes away from one man, gets hit as he throws the football, it's loose, picked up by Jeff Kelly, Kelly to 20, 15, 10, Kelly to the 5, dives, did he get in? Yes, touchdown, Jeff Kelly, Kansas State, leads 40 to 30, the fans are storming the field. You know, it's been said that K-State would never beat Nebraska, it was unthinkable, it's been 29 years that K-State has have to watch the Red fans go home with a win, well today the color of choice is purple, as K-State has beaten Nebraska for the first time in Manhattan since 1959. They win it 40-30, to 30, and it is party time in Manhattan. Was it party time for you after that? Well, it's, uh, you know, it was, uh, again, it was a night game, and, uh, you know, you start right in trying to assess the ball game, watch videotape, and uh, you got to get to some sleep at some time. And the next morning, you're up thinking about the, the right. game to come. So the answer is uh, is no. And, uh, you know, as much as you'd like to and uh, and all, it just uh, just doesn't fit in the right. in the profession. So but, you don't get a chance to, to 20, do that. 29 years, a long time. Bill Snyder, our guest, five-time National Coach of the Year, three Big 8 uh, Coach of the Year, championships, four Big 12 Coach of the Year. Uh, awards author of this brand new uh, brand new book Bill Snyder my football life and the rest of the story just about you uh the impact of your mom on the coach you became and the person you are well uh most amazing you know individual in my life and uh, you know she uh, raised me uh as a uh, uh, single parent my my mother and father separated when i was uh, uh very very young 
and uh, my mother worked uh, 12 hours a day, six days a week uh, at a department store to uh, raise enough money for me to be able to go to college. Uh, My mother never drove an automobile in her life, never had a driver's license. And so we lived in downtown St. Joseph, Missouri, so that she could walk to work where she was employed. And my mother was four foot nine inches tall. She never weighed 100 pounds in her life. And she was the strongest person I've ever known in my life. And she guided me and directed me and uh, gave me, she gave me a, a wonderful opportunity in, uh, in life. So I uh, lost her uh, in, uh, when she was 77 years old. And uh, it's, uh, anyway, it, it's, uh, it's emotional just right. to think about it right now. Lay the foundation. Yeah, and then you always uh, talk about six. Right, you always talk about sixteen mm-hmm. core values. You want to run through a couple? Well, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it there there could be fifty there, and uh, those are uh, intrinsic values. The same thing that you teach your children and everyone else does. It was just a matter of being able to. Uh, to get young people in our program and young people not in our program as well, but just anyone that uh, uh, would lend an ear to realize that it's not just the words. You know, you uh, have been around sports locker rooms, uh, et cetera, and you see, you know, some of the same words, you know, consistency or discipline or hard work, you know, uh, whatever it happens to be, but they're, you know, you find them everywhere. But in most cases, they're just words, and you have to have your own interpretation, and you read it, and you say, okay, I should go work hard, and then yeah. you go on about your business. But we uh, we put great emphasis on each and every one of those, and every single day, you know, I spoke with our players, met with our team uh, twice a day, every day uh, throughout the year, and I would uh, always address, you know, one or two of those core values Mm -hmm. and would uh, go into depth about what they meant and how you could uh, uh, bring them into your lives. Gotcha. And I would have the players speak to them as well. And so it was continual and it was always on their minds and it was always there and there was always uh, it was always something more than just a word. Gotcha. And so there was great value in it for us. Coach, a couple of things. I, I know this is his player likeness. Uh, players can now, to a degree, get paid if there's a dealership or if there's a Gatorade is going to pay, I understand, is going to sponsor a, a female basketball player now. And I understand that different mm-hmm. players, Nebraska is maybe ahead of the game with this, player likeness, uh, name and likeness, uh, are now mm-hmm. part of college sports. So to a degree, they can get paid if they're an entrepreneurial or if some boosters could provide some uh, some access for them to represent some companies. How do you feel about that? Well, I I have some mixed emotions. Uh, I think number one, uh, you know, players deserve some help. Uh, the time commitment is amazing. You know, when you get into collegiate athletics, uh, but I also. Uh, am uh, definitely opposed to uh, the 
uh, oh, the way that it has, uh, has started out, you know, where, uh, you know, a young person, as you just mentioned, can go out and, uh, uh, you know, cut a deal, so to speak. Uh, he can get, uh, you know, 250000 Another guy can go out and get a million. And uh, it creates, in my eyes, it creates a great uh, separation uh, within a program. Uh, you take, uh, yes, I mean, your quarterback can probably go out and get what he wants or your star running back and offensive lineman uh, probably gets nothing. Uh, nobody wants to uh, tout uh, an offensive lineman. and <clears throat> But they're just I, as important. Soon, yeah. uh, if not more so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, sooner or later, uh, those guys are going to look at each other and say, why are we blocking for this guy behind us? And, uh, you know, it, uh, it it just creates some problems. I think uh, you mentioned Nebraska, and I think Nebraska made, uh, you know, some good decisions. If I remember correctly or if I read correctly, uh, they have uh, brought money into the program and dispersed it equally to every player in the program, whether they were – uh, third team or second team or a starter or the star, right. whatever the case may be, it was equal for all of them. That I can buy into. Gotcha. Um, there's some stories out today uh, that looks like that uh, it looks like Notre Dame's uh, coach is going to be leaving, going mm-hmm. to uh, going over to LSU. Does that surprise you? Uh, I well, it wasn't something I expected to read uh, or hear about this morning. But uh, uh, the answer is probably no, because nothing in uh, collegiate football surprises me anymore. Uh, you know, I uh, we, you know, we talk to young people about you know loyalty and not getting in the transfer portal, <clears throat> which I think is the wrong thing to do. But yet here as coaches, we turn around and uh, go to the highest bidder. Uh, so uh, I, I I think there's it's really creating some, some problems. And, you know, here guys are signing contracts for, you know, $10 million a year. Uh, you know, and it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, coaches don't deserve – you know, a good deal of money, but by the same token, it, uh, you know, it just seems like it gets out of hand and, and sends yeah. a bad message to young people in, in our programs. Yeah, Brian Kelly to LSU. We'll see what happens next for Fighting Irish, who have been perennial winners under him, which is not easy. They have mm-hmm. high academic standards. Uh, Bill Snyder, congratulations on your great career, your great book, um, and everything you've accomplished. People can learn a lot from it, even if you don't coach, even if you want to be a better parent. My football life and the rest of the story. Best of luck, uh, Coach. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it. And I do want you to know that uh, uh, I watch you uh, regularly. When my wife will let me have TV, she watches CNN. So, right. <laughs> but I watch you. you got to take control of that relationship, Coach. Uh, you're right. <laughs> That's a hard thing to do. I know. Uh, 215 wins, 117 losses, one tie, and you always lose to Mrs. Snyder. Bill Snyder, thanks so much. Thank you. You Bye-bye, Brian. All right. Best of luck. Uh, When we come back, we'll wrap things up. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for being with us today on this Tuesday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Tonight, I'll be in Vero Beach. I'll be flying down to Florida. I might take off my jacket and loosen up my tie. That's how you recognize me. And then on... Wednesday, I'll be in Hollywood, Florida at the Patriot Award signing books there. And then Friday in Pensacola and then over to, to uh, Alabama. Uh, go get details, BrianKillMe.com. And let WDBO, WDBO listeners, especially Orlando, OKV over in Jacksonville. Uh, we still have tickets left, not many, in the Plaza Live. I'll be doing the President and Freedom Fighter uh, tour. Talk about Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. One of the most enjoyable things I've had a chance to do and insightful things of late is spend a day with Tim Scott. Uh, he helped me out on the special with the President Freedom Fighter, but I also had a chance to see him in his own environment, uh, out and about, walking around. Uh, here's a look of uh, that feature. I'm What's two parts of my interview with Tim Scott? He talks about how it all started and the big break he got from Governor Nikki Haley. So listen to uh, my interview with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, maybe the next presidential candidate. Senator, I want to talk politics. Yes. First off, you got into it because you wanted to give back, and it was, you started off at a very local level. 100%. I started on the county council. I mean, that is as local as it gets, except for the school board. Uh, is that I, full-time? No. It's part-time, but it takes full-time hours. So, literally, you make $12,000 a year, but you're spending 30 or 40 hours a week if you love it. And I love serving people, so it was a passion. But you're talking about you know, ditches and potholes. You're talking about trash pickup. You're talking about local fire departments and, and sheriff's department. You're talking about running a jail, or at least funding a jail, not running a jail. So these are really important everyday issues. And when you're in your Piggly Wiggly or your Walmarts, you're running into your constituent, your bosses. They're right there. And they want to answer, why, why, why has my trash not been picked up yet? Or what's going on with the potholes? So you learn very quickly retail politics. Understood. So you, you like it enough to do what next? State House. Went to the State House next and spent two years in the State House. It was a very short amount of time in the State House. I realized very quickly that while that was a great experience, I wanted to do something different. Why? It just, it just, I, di- I didn't feel comfortable there very long. And decided, couldn't get your teeth into anything. There was no exact job description in that. Exact. It's nebulous. Yeah. And so I was going to run for Lieutenant Governor. And I started running for Lieutenant Governor, and every place I went around the state, they said. You're not, you shouldn't run for lieutenant governor. You should run for Congress. He said, everything you're speaking about is a federal issue, not a state issue. And so literally, the constituents that I was talking to, the voters I was talking to, said, you're running for the wrong job. We might vote for you for lieutenant governor, but right. we definitely support you for Congress. But the problem was that Henry Brown, my Congress member, was running for re-election. And then in January, he announced he was not running for re-election. I was five months into my lieutenant governor's race, and, and people said, pivot. Well, Strom Thurmond's son was in the race. Governor Campbell, Carol Campbell's namesake son was already in the race. The last thing I wanted to do was to pivot into a crowded Republican primary against two behemoths of, of Republican South Carolina politics. And I uh, prayed about it and got lots of advice from folks like Joe and others who said, your race is Congress, win or lose, you got to get in that race. So you did? I did it. And why do you think you ended up prevailing in that race? I did. 
and it ended up being you against who? Uh, Strom Thurmond's son, Paul. Paul Thurmond, one on one. And with the name uh, Strom, with name Thurmond in this state, you was able to prevail. Why? Well, conservative politics, conservative principles. I was there. It was a central issue around funding for certain uh, assets in South Carolina. He decided that whatever it takes, including more federal money, including uh, earmarks, he would support it. I said I would not support our most important assets if it took earmarks to get there. I think that was one of the delineations between the two campaigns and the two, two candidates. So I went, I went straight to who I am. I'm not going to support even our assets here at home if it's going to cost us unnecessarily as a country. Uh, and earmarks was that cost, and it was too high to pay. You're there a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, Senator Jim DeMent says, I'm going to retire right away. Right. Governor Nikki Haley has to quickly fill that spot. Yes. What were you thinking? Well, I was stunned first that he was retiring. He was the most powerful and, and popular senator in our state. Do you know him? I know him well. And he called me the Thursday that he was making his announcement and told me, uh, Tim, uh, I'm going to make my announcement. I'm going to retire. And I think you're going to be one of the choices that Nikki will have to choose between. Um, and I was like, please don't retire. We, we don't want to lose you now. And he says, I, you know, I, it's my time and, and wish me good luck. And about nine days went by and I didn't hear a word from Nikki until uh, a Friday afternoon or so. It was eight days went by. Friday afternoon, got a call from someone in her, her organization said, be on the lookout. She may call you. And Sunday afternoon, I think it was, she called. I went up to the, to the uh, state house to the governor's mansion, and then the next morning she announced me as the, uh, the senator. What was that conversation like? Well, you got I'm drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, I'm thinking to myself, seven days after the announcement of his retirement, she's interviewed, it looked like a lot of other candidates, and I was not even getting a phone call from her, so I assumed it was not going to happen. So I had kind of just moved on until then. But you wanted it. I certainly wanted to be considered. And, and uh, Trey Gowdy and I sat down and did an interview, and I thought he might be the best person for the job. He thought I might be the best person for the job. I said so publicly, and he said so publicly, and then he, he just ultimately didn't want to, want to do it, uh, so he told her to appoint me. Um, and I think that had some bearing on it as well. So at the end of the day, um, I found myself in a position I had never even dreamt of being, becoming a United States Senator for the great state of South Carolina. I never even dreamed that that was possible. How did you know you liked the job? There's a lot of people that just don't like being a senator. They don't want to be one of 100. We don't get enough done. It's frustrating Listen. to go back and forth. You go in the minority sometimes and you're yes. invisible. So why did you why did you think you liked it? Well, I didn't like it. Off at the beginning, I, I tell you, I, I used to say that I am housebroken but not Senate trained because it was a lot of fun to be in the House. I, I realized after about 18 months or that 18 months or so that the Senate provided me an opportunity to have more influence on legislation. I could actually hold something up or get something done as a senator that would have taken 100 House members. And so I started realizing that a part of the beauty and the benefit of being a senator is you can get things done. Right. It's harder, but had I not been a senator, opportunity zones wouldn't, be, wouldn't have gotten done. Had I not been a senator, my role in reforming our tax code would not have been possible. It was because I was on that side of the of the Capitol, right. that I had a chance to peer into legislation and set my own priorities. And the historic nature of you being named as an African-American in South Carolina, does, does, what, what role does that have in you saying, I, I have to make the most of this? Well, I think I'm, I think I'm burdened by history uh, in many ways, and I'm delighted that I am a, a part of the process. Burdened by history, meaning that so many times the conversation starts off about the first African-American 
senator from the South. Blessing and curse at the same time. My theory is I'm not called to serve black people. I'm just called to serve Americans. I think it is, it says a lot about our country and it says a lot about South Carolina that they chose me and then elected me to be their senator. I like talking about the evolution of the Southern heart because the state I live in is not the state that my grandfather was born in, not the state that my mother was born in, even though both are called South Carolina. This South Carolina is different. We have evolved so much in so little time right. that access to real opportunity, being judged by your character and not your color, right. is my reality. And that is, that is such a blessing to live in our South Carolina. What I noticed about you, might not be true, is that you'll talk about race. You'd rather not. Absolutely. you you rather not, even though it's necessary, but you rather talk about the issues in your party and the country how do you handle that? The fact that it, you're reluctant to the fact that you are historic, or the position you have, and yeah. what you've achieved. I think there's two really important points. Um, number one, God made me black on purpose. I think uh, we are all by divine design. And so it's my responsibility to take advantage of every characteristic I have in order to serve people. That means I have a different experience here in the country. That is helpful for me to understand the pain, the challenges, and the progress that we've made. But I prefer just to be one of a hundred, to be one person representing a state and the nation, not the black guy, but just the guy. But that's not my plight, and I'm okay with that. I've, I've, I've embraced it, I, but I like economic issues, not black economic issues, just economic issues. I like green. I like to talk about green more than black and white, and that's something I find great joy in. But I also like talking about people who've been marginalized. And disproportionately, a lot of African-Americans have had that experience. But in South Carolina, that's true for my rural folks as well. Rural South Carolina has been without representation. Right. Rural America has been without representation. So I have a chance to go into certain parts of the state where they don't look like me, but they vote for me because I understand their heart. Right. And that's the beauty of our nation. We always continue to progress in the right direction, giving opportunities to people right. that look like me that represent people who look like you because our hearts are congruent. Right. Um, you want some company, though, don't you, in the Republican Party? Oh, listen, I'm, hey, come I'm, on. Working, I'm working hard for some company in the Republican Party. Actually, I started organizations to train minority candidates how to be successful when they run for office. Uh, we've had uh, success with folks like Daniel Cameron and um, Wesley Hunt came through of school, and hopefully he'll be a Congress member next time. I've helped Byron Donalds and other candidates win office. So you'll have uh, some company. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. But coming up after the break, more from my sit down with Tim Scott, where I actually stood up and walked around. We talk about his big rebuttal to the State of the Union of Joe Biden. More of that when we come back in the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, every welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoy my interview with Tim Scott. It's a side of Tim Scott almost no one's seen unless you're one of his best friends. He gave me an entire afternoon in this part of the interview that has not aired on television. We talk about what happened in Virginia and what could be happening for him in 2024. But first, he's focusing on 2022 as well as a big issue for him, and that's police reform. More with Tim Scott. Senator, when you look at your career, one thing that stands out that people took notice is when you had the rebuttal to the State of the Union address. It is usually a death knell. Most political (laughs) consultants say, do not do this. I don't care who the president is. It always goes bad. Yes. You took it, and it went great. Right. 
What do you think about, what was it about that speech and your delivery that worked? I think it was just being authentically and sincerely myself. I honestly think that America's hungry for some good news. I think America's hungry to hear the truth, that while we have an original sin, we are not a racist country. That fighting discrimination with discrimination is wrong. I think America wants to remember that the greatest dreams of our people doesn't happen in Washington. It happens in studio apartments, in garages. It happens in local libraries where people get together. Right. That the greatness of America can't be found in a place where 535 people congregate and call right. it Congress. It happens in everyday places all over the country on both sides of the proverbial track. Right. Talking to that inspires and encourages people. Looking in a camera and saying that if you were a single mother wondering if it's worth it, having been raised by a single mom, the answer is yes. I think just sharing that right. truth of who we are and the progress we've made and the hurdles that remain, I think it was at the right time. And it was counter to what the president was saying. The president had a totally different message. Absolutely. His was more of a collectivist mentality that one day somehow, if we redivide all of our, our resources, you'll get your fair share. That's just wrong. That somehow, that I mean, President Trump did a good job when he said, America will never be a socialist country. Right. Biden has been leading in the opposite direction. This is the divide where people like me can step in and fill. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen the government come in with good intentions to help people, but it just made you a little more comfortable in your poverty. Never an escape route. We on the right, we provide the escape route. Since that time, I haven't seen your bank book, uh, but money has flowed into your account, and there's a buzz about Tim Scott not only running for Senate re-election, which you're doing, but for the presidency. There yeah. A lot of people see that in you. Yeah. What is your reaction when people say that to you? Like, well, for example, me. Yes. Well, yeah, the money has flown into my campaign accounts without any questions. Yeah, I know. We've, we've raised a lot of money, uh, and that's a blessing. They say $8 million. Yeah, yeah. We, we've been blessed, honestly. I, I'd say this, that uh, A, you never think about what's next until you fight and win what's now, number one. Number two, a lot of folks have been uh, waiting for their chance to run for president. I'm waiting for another chance to represent people. Uh, I'm not as interested in titles as I am in representing representing the people that I love. And that's this country, and that's my state. And wherever the good Lord takes me, I will go. You won't rule it out, though. Well, I won't rule it in. I, I'll just simply say this. I won't, I'm not even talking about what's next until I win this 2022 race. What did you and what did Republicans learn, if anything, from now Governor-elect Youngkin's campaign? Well, I've been, I've been trying to say it for a long time, and he's, he just did it. Happy warriors attract a bigger crowd that politics is a game of addition, that talking about education is something that we as Republicans should always focus on. Having parental involvement is key. I've talked about the importance of school choice and education equality for a long time. He has run on those issues that that resonate with the average person in this country. If we were to win in 2022 and beyond, we're gonna have to just talk plain English to our folks, and when we do, when we champion the causes that they believe in the most, we're going to be okay. Purple states, purple country, where you have to win over independence and undecided. Absolutely. There, in a Republican, the reality is if you alienate Donald Trump, you have no shot. Yep. And in some places, if you embrace 
him at tied at the hip, you also won't be successful. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Youngkin welcomed the endorsement, but never asked him to come campaign with him. In fact, he asked no one. What do you take from that? Well, listen, I think he, he was smart. He knows that a Republican running without President Trump's endorsement or support is probably a losing proposition. He also understands that his goal was not President Trump. His goal was Glenn Youngkin. Right. He wanted people to know him. He didn't just ask President Trump not to campaign. He asked everybody not to come. Not to come. Because he wanted the Commonwealth of Virginia to get to know him right. as a candidate. I think that's ideal. The ideal outcome is to have the endorsements of those who support right. the best movement in politics, which is the Republican Party. And number two, do it on your own. I mean, that, that's called grit. It's what we right. love in America. We, we like grit. We want to see the guy or the gal get up and work for it every day and not come in on somebody else's coattails. You didn't do police reform. And for a year ago, it looked like it was going to get done. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, I refuse to federalize local law enforcement. Local law enforcement should always be, in my opinion, local. That's what the Democrats wanted. They wanted to set a standard that had to be met in Chicago with thousands of officers and uh, Marion, South Carolina, or Newberry, or Clinton with under 50 officers. This, we, we can't use one size fits all mm -hmm. and consider that local law enforcement. And the second part was there were 11 sections of the bill that either reduced funding, eliminated eligibility for funding, or defunded the police. I just can't do that. Got it. So you, no regrets about not getting it None done? None at all. And this issue seems to have boomeranged now. People are saying don't defund the police. Oh my gosh. Refund the police. Uh, Minneapolis, 5644, right. led by African Americans. Basically said, are you crazy? We're not defunding the police. We're not eliminating the police department. And that's, just, that's a bold statement, uh, and frankly, in New York City, electing a former police officer. You know, it's going to be interesting. Senator Tim Scott, uh, to me, is someone, if Donald Trump was not in the race, if he already did his two terms, if this was his second term, there's no doubt about it, he'd be a candidate. But you know one of the main per people that wants him to be a candidate? Everyone except him. I mean, his mom would like to see him go. Others would like to see him go. He says, you know, if that's the next step, that's the next step. He's somebody who has ambition, but he just wants to make the greatest impact. The greatest impact. And if that's being president, that's the president. At the very least, if Trump runs, I bet he's on the ticket. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest minutes of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. We have a big hour coming your way, a simulcast with Barney and Company. Uh, we will also update you and recap what's going on with President Biden's first speech to the United Nations. He's talking about uh, that we're going to support climate change, as usual, and he's going to say we're not going to start a Cold War with China. I didn't think we were anyway. Uh, that's what the U.N. accuses us of doing, and we'll talk about that as well as uh, try to make sense of the way we left Afghanistan, which will prove to be impossible. Uh, but we're going to give up the big three for a great reason. Uh, one of America's, if not the uh, finest documentarians and historians is with us now. Uh, he has made a major impact on those who want to know about American history and and get it through uh, the lens of how it lived it. I think the first time I saw, heard about Ken Burns, who was with the uh, the history of baseball. And then, of course, we have... 
then we have the Civil War. And the last one was an area in which I thought I knew more than Ken, and that is the life of Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali. He has now taken on that, uh, and he's done a remarkable job. It is a it is a four-round fight. Round one was on, and uh, it's on PBS. Ken Burns joins us now. Ken, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Brian. Uh, no problem. Ken, what made you want to tackle Muhammad Ali? Because you're not the biggest boxing guy, but you realize the impact of this man. Yeah, you know, I've done one other boxing film on Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion in the beginning of the 20th century. I'm, I'm not that interested in boxing, except where the boxer intersects with American life. And when you think about Muhammad Ali, he intersects with all of the major themes of the last half of the 20th century. I mean, the role of sports in society, the role of the black athlete, the definitions of black masculinity and manhood, the civil rights movement, the human justice movement, our age-old question about race, politics, war, faith, religion, Islam, sex. I mean, all of the things we're also discussing today. So there's something kind of protean about this figure. He's considered the greatest athlete of the 20th century. I think a good barroom argument might be that he's the greatest athlete, period, full stop, willing to have that discussion. But I think it's the way in which his life reminds us about freedom and courage and love. I mean, he dies the most beloved person on the planet. And that ought to be ought to ought to spark some curiosity of how someone who was so reviled in the 1960s for various stands he had taken could could sort of transform into this beloved figure in which billions that's with a b uh, people were drawn to him and uh loved him i i just watching uh, the Frazier fights and the Foreman fight and the Liston fight and what they meant in overcoming things you might never want to be a boxer but if you met someone in your life that intimidates you and you win uh maybe Ali could show you the template how to do that and that could have been uh Liston for example who everyone was afraid to get his jab let alone uh, feel his wrath, and he beats him. Here's David Remnick. He's one of the many uh, experts who you talk to and in, in this piece, and he talks about how Ali wasn't always loved. Cut 34. We now think of Muhammad Ali as this vulnerable guy lighting the torch in Atlanta, and everybody on the globe loves him. Black people like him, white people. He's a universal hero, like almost in a religious way, like the Buddha. But when he was in the midst of his career, and not just in the early bit, he was incredibly divisive. Boo, yell, scream, throw peanuts, but whatever you do, pay to get in. People hated him, whether it was along racial lines, class lines, Vietnam lines, political lines, religious lines, where they just couldn't stand him. And people, of course, had the opposite. And this was, I loved him, loved him. Uh, the author, he was the author of King of the World, Muhammad Ali and the Rise of an American Hero. Uh, David, he, he spoke up. He, he, uh, uh, Ken, uh, as Ken, David mentioned, Ken, he spoke up, he spoke out, he bragged, and he backed it up. Yeah. Well, so there's an interesting dynamic here, Brian. Um, David uses, I think, quite appropriately the phrase divisive. But I wonder if it's 
Ali who's divisive or us who's divisive. And, and let me just explore that for one second. I'll use a baseball metaphor. He comes up. He's bragging, as you say. He's reciting poetry. He's predicting the rounds in which his opponents are going to fall, and they usually do fall in that round. And he's not behaving the way an athlete is supposed to behave, and particularly in the early 1960s, how a black athlete is supposed to, put that in quotes, right. behave. Right. One. Then he wins the championship. You know, it's a nine-to-one odds against him uh, to beat Liston, and he's figured Liston out, and he's just clearly brilliant, and it's an amazing fight. You know, I call all the fights the collected work of William Shakespeare because you can't make this up. The internal and internal drama of these fights are beyond imagination, and they're all the most important ones. The 25 most important ones are in the film. But after he wins the world championship – he announces that he's a member of a separatist a religious cult called the Nation of Islam, and that soon after that, they are going to change his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. This is, you know, incendiary in America uh, and strike two. Then, based on religious beliefs, he refuses induction into the United States Army in Vietnam. He's been classified as undraftable, and then because we needed more fodder, more soldiers there for that war that wasn't going well. Um, He was reclassified 1A. He refused induction. He was convicted. Though the prosecutors had suggested uh, rejecting his conscientious objector argument, um, I think America saw it only in political terms, that a black man was giving a middle finger to the USA, not that it was a sincerely held religious belief. But no matter, the prosecutors recommend something. The book is thrown at $10,000 and five years in prison, which he appeals. But that's the strike three, because so many people, black as well as white, just thought there was a sort of ungratitude. There was something scary about the nation of Islam. And, um, you know, he, he was refusing to participate in a war, which at that time in 1966, a majority of Americans um, favored. So that's where the great animosity, he, he loses everything. He gives up everything. I mean, he knew and everyone knew that he could go into the army and he'd have a cushy job. He'd appear at USO shows and he'd do, you know, make trips. And like Joe Lewis. Was be fun. Like Joe Lewis, but he didn't do it. He was holding to his beliefs. So I think what happens is you begin to see this rehabilitation take place in the early 70s. Finally, the Supreme Court unanimously um, frees him from this prison sentence on a technicality, not not establishing that, uh, that, that he was right about conscientious objector on a technicality. But nonetheless, he's free. And he, he, he makes a, a – uh, he's already fought a couple fights. He's now going to go back and fight Frazier to get back his title. He loses, and he does so spectacularly with great humility. Right. At the end. Which is so and, interesting. And, and, and you, you point this we, out, Ken, and I just, I, I'm going to let you, people hear it. But you say the loss turned things around in his public perception. First, let's hear it. This was one of the most fascinating fights ever. It totally ever, lived up to the hype tonight in 1971. Here it is, March 8th, 1971. After the fight, Ali had been knocked down on the 15th, but got up. Cut 41. Nine to six for Frazier. Frazier the Eleven rounds for Frazier, four rally, one eleven and four. The winner by unanimous decision and heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Frazier. So, what changed after the loss? 
So I think, you know, and let's just be honest, too. This film is very uh, clear that Muhammad Ali, an outsized personality with great strength, like an ancient Greek hero, uh, also has weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strength. Before the fight, which was called the fight of the century, he had used the language of a, that a white racist would use to describe a black man about his black opponent, Joe Frazier, who is completely unacceptable. As the scholar Todd Boyd says, you know, in this case, here's the ultimate conscious black guy, but he's using his powers for evil instead of good. And I think one way of understanding it is implied there is that there's a kind of superhero nature to Muhammad Ali. Anyway, he knows he's behind on points. The last round, he's trying desperately to get a knock out of Frazier. And instead, you know, he, he, he's vulnerable because of that desperation and Frazier knocks him down. He's immediately up. The decision, as you heard, is unanimous for Frazier. He's remaining the heavyweight champion. Muhammad Ali afterwards is soft-spoken. He says into every life failure must come. I have to be an example. People lose their lives. They lose loved ones. They lose titles and we have to go forward. It's an amazing thing, but America by March of 71, has looking at him in, 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 with different eyes. They're beginning to think, you know, maybe he's right. All the combat troops are coming out of Vietnam. It's been a mistake um, that he, he was right about Vietnam. And more importantly, he had held to his conscience and he was trying to come back. And so as Robert Lipsight said, Frazier, uh, one of the great sports writers and who was a cub reporter and followed Cassius Clay and then Muhammad Ali all through his career, he says, he was um, essentially – Frazier won the fight, but Ali won America, and that's when kids, black and white, began putting his poster up. And then it's only three years before he has – he wins back the championship in spectacular fashion in another Liston-like situation where people in his corner are worried he's going to be killed by his opponent in Kinshasa Zaire, George Foreman. Instead, like the Liston fight, it's just – an by that time – the rehabilitation has has um, I'm not saying is complete. I think it was probably complete by the time he was lighting the torch in Atlanta 25 years right. ago this summer. His hands shaking from the effects of the Parkinson's that all the blows to the head probably provoked. It was a inherited family trait, and and we do know that Parkinson's does get handed down. But maybe those blows provoked it, and he's silenced and and sort of encased by it. And now he's this beloved figure, Michael J. Fox, the great actor who has Parkinson said an amazing thing, Brian. He said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. This loud, voluble, funny, great man who spoke all the time, whenever he spoke, right. um, you know, the sports world stopped, now couldn't speak and in some ways spoke volumes and became right. an ambassador for the U.S. around the, the world and died, as I said, the most beloved person. And so he spoke volumes even in his silence. Right. It's just one of the great stories that I've ever come across. And by the way, this film is co-directed by my daughter, Sarah Burns, and her husband, David McMahon. We collaborated on the Central Park Five film and the Jackie Robinson film several years ago. Yeah, Ken, it just goes so beyond boxing, and, and uh, yeah. it is fantastic. So, Ken, you're kind enough to do two segments, so we'll take a short time out, come back, and let you finish up. But keep in mind, Muhammad Ali is airing now on PBS. Uh, you can download it or, or watch it on your local affiliate. It is so worth the watch. Back in a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. But I didn't dance. I didn't dance for a reason. I wanted to make him lose all his power. I kept telling him he had no punch. He couldn't hit. He's swinging like a sissy. He's missing. Let me see your box. I hadn't started dancing yet. You can't say my legs are gone. You can't say I was tired because what happened? I didn't dance from the second round on. I stayed on the ropes. When I stay on the ropes, you think I'm doing bad. But I want all boxers to put this on the page of boxers. Staying on the ropes is a beautiful thing with a heavyweight when you make him shoot his best shots and you know he's not hitting you. I would have gave George Solomon two rounds of steady punching because after that he was mine. And that's the rope-a-dope strategy, which is now part of American vernacular. Uh, we got a couple more minutes with Ken Burns. Ken, that moment, just like the Liston moment, but they really said he lost to Frazier, got his jaw broken by Norton, Foreman crushed both those guys inside of two rounds. How could Ali survive? How did he do it? Can you make sense of it? Yeah, he used his head, his heart, his spirit, his face, all of those things. He he understood the internal dynamics of what was going to win, and he applied that. I mean, his own corner is screaming at him, Angelo Dundee, get off the ropes, get off the ropes the entire time. But he had a strategy, and he basically let George, who one punch connecting, would that would be it, like Sonny Liston. I mean, it's just one of those great fights. As I said, it's Shakespearean in its internal drama and its external drama there in Zaire and Kinshasa, you know, supported by this dictator, you know, Mobuto Sese Seiko. It's just you can't make this stuff up. And it is really the high point of everything. He regains the title. He is, as Howard Bryant says in the film, whole again. And it reminds you, you know, I've been making films, Brian, about the U.S. for nearly 50 years, but I've also been making films about us. That is to say, the two-letter, lowercase, plural pronoun, all of the intimacy of us and all of the majesty, all of the complexity, all of the contradiction, even all of the controversy of the U.S. It's a marvelous. I feel privileged to sort of exist in that space. And what I learned when I was working on our country music documentary is that there's only us. There's no them. And we spend way too much of our energy creating them. It's a kind of out of political expedience. But as they say, in war, the first casualty is the truth. In political expediency, the first casualty is the truth. And what you can find embedded in the life of Muhammad Ali is someone who emerges phoenix-like from the trials that he was put through, from losing three and a half years at the height of his career to rise once again, not once, but twice, to the heavyweight championship and do it uh, in a, in a, with the, engaging the themes of freedom. It's tough for a black man to achieve, you know, escape the specific gravity of what this country can sometimes do. It's about courage, not just in the ring, as he exhibited in Zaire there, but also uh, in life. Uh, and it's about love. I mean, this is, this is a guy who understood it. There's a wonderful shot of the Beatles visiting the Fifth Street gym while he's training for Liston. And there's a fake publicity shot, you know, of him hitting George. And George is, hit, you know, is toppling down like dominoes, Ringo, John, and Paul. And I realized, my goodness, there are five men who understood what the mechanics are of the universe. That is to say that only love multiplies. And, you know, it's probably best said by one of the two survivors, Paul McCartney, who said, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. This is what Muhammad Ali was about. And those last three decades, imprisoned as it seems to us, um, 
in in the ravages of Parkinson's, nonetheless, just became this huge figure. His daughter Rashida, in the last episode, squeezes her fingers together and said, "Boxing was only this much," meaning you know he could have done anything else. He could have been a carpenter. You never know what he would have done. We you can see from the early footage of him, and you can see him say this as a young man: "I don't have to box. I know I'm destined for something." And I think in some ways he was, as so many people in our history, as you know, Brian, particularly having studied recently Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, some people are messengers of us, not them, of us. And therefore, they're messengers of the U.S. And I am so proud that Muhammad Ali is one of us. He's an American. I, I wish I could have added to those statements, but it was just so perfect. That's why you do what you do. Ken Burns, how do we get this? You can, you you know, it's on PBS. Uh, episode three is tonight and episode four tomorrow night broadcast. But it's been available since Sunday for free at PBS.org slash Ali. So you can go back and catch up if you haven't seen it. You can look at your right. leisure. Uh, we're now in no longer appointment Ken, TV. But Ken Burns, thanks so much. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. We're going to have a big hour come anyway. Congressman Michael McCall, he, like many of us, are outraged about what's happening on our southern border. It's not so much bad strategy. It's no strategy. It's get out of the way, defang ICE, don't build the wall, and let everybody come in. Let's uh, distribute 600,000 people around the country. Let 1.7 million come through our borders and don't complain or we'll ignore it. That we are not ignoring. We've got two great reporters there, Griff Jenkins as well as Bill Malusian, and we'll tell you the latest of what's happening. We'll also uh, talk to Michael McCall uh, about the spending bill that is working its way through Democratic circles. Uh, we're all just bystanders. Uh, with me right now is somebody that wrote on a topic that every single home listening to me right now uh, has something they can relate to about it. His name is uh, Greg Zuckerman. He's not uh, new to our show. Uh, Greg's got a brand new book out, and I think the first time, Greg, you came on, it was about the Wildcatters, uh, the frackers, yes, right, and yes. what they did, to, and a, we, that's still uh, an apt topic. Your brand new book out today is called A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. You do not take on easy topics, <laughs> but you take on very important topics. I try to explain how big things happened uh, for, you know, the average reader, because I'm sort of an average guy. And there's often a lot of drama that people aren't aware of and also uh, innovation and entrepreneurship. And I think we need to appreciate it. 2019 happens. We don't even know how China gave us this virus. We don't know. We thought we have some strange animal bat theory. And we got the more likely theory now, the Wuhan lab theory. But all we know is Americans are getting it. Uh, there's asymptomatic spread. There's person-to-person spread. We don't even know exactly what we're dealing with, but we know we got to stop it. Where does your book pick up? Yeah, so I tell the drama of the past year, but I first start decades earlier. Why do I do that? Because the approaches that we have depended on for these vaccines, the mRNA, this adenovirus one that led to the J&J and some other ones. These approaches, actually, they started years earlier, all in America. We're talking about innovators, researchers, scientists in labs just slogging away, trying to push it forward, 
meeting frustrations, and I want to shed light on how it was a long process. So some of us are nervous, and, and for good reason. Well, all of a sudden, we've got these vaccines, and we, we, the average vaccine until this year, 10 years it takes, the average vaccine. The fastest one ever was measles, for, and that was four years. And here you are coming and telling me that these vaccines I'm going to be taking over, and they were done within 300 days. 300 days, Brian. And part of the reason why I wrote this book is to explain that we'll actually know the research, the the amazing American usually, but not always, um, technology that went into this stuff. It took years, literally decades, to get it right. Right. So first off, how long did it take for them to realize what they were dealing with? So some of the scientists I write about and the executives in, in, in the companies like Stefan Bensel at Moderna and Ugar Sahin at BioNTech – in January, they were starting to get scared. And there's an executive I write about, actually, a senior guy at Moderna. January uh, of 2020. January of 2020. He started telling his family, buy stuff, um, toilet paper, tissues. He bought a third refrigerator to stock up his house and food. And his family thought he was crazy. We're talking about the middle of January. When you and I, I was flying. I remember flying in Europe in the middle of January, and I wasn't wearing a mask. No one was kind of concerned. But these guys were. So I give them a lot of credit. They were, were worried about this, this, this both the pandemic, but also just about the spread and where it might go. So to their credit, they said, we have to do something about it. Understood. So we have to do something about it. Why not go for a therapeutic to treat it? Yeah, it's a good question. Some companies did try. Uh, largely unsuccessful. There's hopes now that maybe we'll have a pill. But historically, vaccines are where, how we stop pandemics and how we stop plagues. Um, things like polio, um, going back in history and even more recently, vaccines are usually the thing, the, the holy grail, um, because you get a shot and you're protected and vaccines, what's really fascinating to me is until 2020, the big companies really didn't want to be in vaccines. There wasn't that much money in vaccines. You know, you take a shot every once in a while. It's not like a statin every day. Who wants to be in it? So what I found fascinating is the big giants, Merck, GSK, Sanofi, they're the vaccine giants. They didn't go after a COVID vaccine. or They, they did half-heartedly. They weren't successful. Instead, it was these unknown companies, Moderna, BioNTech, those kinds of scientists. Why do you think they did? Uh, partly because they're entrepreneurial. It takes sort of uh, uh, innovators, people that ignore the experts. I mean, if you remember back in early 2020, a lot of the experts said, oh, yeah, it's going to take years to, to develop a vaccine. Don't waste your time. Don't believe in mRNA. It hasn't been proven before. And I give these guys a lot of credit, the scientists within these companies. And they believed in their work, and, and they had this resilience and an ability to ignore the experts. How many companies were actually contracted by uh, the, American, the U.S. government to go to work on this vaccine? So Operation Warp Speed chose six companies to give funding to, two um, from three different vaccine approaches. mRNA is one, the adenovirus one is, is another approach, and there's the protein subunit approach. So there are three approaches, and what they did was it was a little bit like an investment portfolio. Operation Warp Speed said, we're going to have a portfolio here, and we're going to assume that some will work, some won't work. We're going to get some home run in this portfolio. They got more than one home run, and you got to give a Warp Speed tremendous amount of of credit, both for the financing, but other kind of help they gave the companies as well. And I don't think it's appreciated how much 
um, the, the government worked with these companies to, to develop these vaccines. Like we've never possibly seen before. Greg Zuckerman here. His book is out today. If you have not heard of how this happened, no one has. He does original reporting like nobody else I've ever seen. He was able to unwind it for the everyman. He, even though Greg sounds like a scientist, he's not. No. He got a Ph.D. to help him out and explain this whole thing to him. Uh, and the, the name of the book is called A Shot to Save the World. Who came up with the idea for Operation Warp Speed or the concept? So um, it's not clear. It was brought to well, Donald who, who Trump. Was part of it? Uh, Mansell Slawi is was the head of it. Mansell Slawi is an interesting guy. He was on the board of Moderna, but he was always a little bit skeptical of Moderna and mRNA for years. But he's a super smart guy, and Donald Trump got, got behind it. The administration got behind it. It was a brilliant idea because never in history have we done things at the same time, meaning manufacture a vaccine, test the vaccine, do all the steps necessary. Usually you wait, and it takes years, literally takes years. First you test it, first you develop it, then you test it. And then you manufacture it. And the idea was, let's do it all at the same time. So we're losing tens of thousands of people. We don't have that type of time. So we got to go do it. So uh, there was a race to do it. So how did the government set up private industry to be successful, to do their thing, to free them up, to to take chances? So part of it was with plain old cash. And uh, it was money that some of these companies took, not all of them, but some of them took to develop, to, to do trials, to develop their vaccines. But it was also money that they paid to buy the vaccines ahead of time. I mean, can you imagine the risk that was taken and the criticism that might have resulted had these vaccines not worked out, they had not been not been effective. We as a government stepped up. We paid. We wrote big checks to these companies saying, we think you're going to get it right. We think you're going to produce these vaccines and we're going to write a check right now. And they needed that money. They, they, were, they were desperate. Some of these companies I write about were desperate for financing and as, as recently as May 2020. So you explained this to me and hopefully this question will come out right. You said for the first time they were able to test in real time. It wasn't like, hey, try this. You were able to test in real time. How? So I would argue that the testing um, was traditional in that there were tens of thousands of people that uh, underwent the trials, volunteers and such. They recruited them. They just went at a faster pace but not compromising safety. And I was looking for that. I was careful about that. And everyone I've talked to was saying to me, Greg, um, we were aware and we were scared like anybody else. And we knew that if we produce a vaccine that had had an awful side effect – not only would it blow it for us, you know, our company and our, and our uh, effort, it would blow it for everyone. So we were really very careful. So to their credit, the FDA moved quicker um, than usual, but not in terms of compromising safety, just in terms of getting rid of the bureaucracy. So when did they start seeing success? So some of these companies like Moderna had early signs. We're talking even January and February of 2020. In things they were testing in monkeys and in, in mammals. Um, so they internally were pretty optimistic, but they couldn't um, say they, it. No, right. They couldn't say it. They weren't sure. We weren't, there weren't a lot of these mammals either. So they had hints. They had early hints. When you and I were starting to get nervous about this uh, pandemic, when I was locking down in my basement in New Jersey, um, these companies were starting to get optimistic. But the, the real question was, would they have the resources? And in Moderna, yes, they turned to the government, but they also turned to Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street gets all this criticism. Big Pharma gets all this criticism. We've got to give them a lot of credit. Wall Street stepped up at a time 
In May 2020, the Gates Foundation didn't give Moderna money. Um, Merck didn't want to work with Moderna. A lot of people didn't want to have anything to do with Moderna. They were unheard of, unknown. They were approached. No one really trusted. And and Wall Street did step up. And after, we have to give them a lot of credit. They gave over a billion dollars, put them in, in the pocket. They bought shares. And Moderna said, go, go, go. Let's go build this vaccine. Where did the Gates Foundation put their money then? Oh, they made other kind of bets. And they did good work. I don't want to uh, dismiss but the work. But they didn't go they for did. this. Yeah. Right. They, 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 they had resources tied up elsewhere. Um, so so to f- describe for everyone, uh, you know, if I want the flu vaccine, they shoot the flu into you. And they hope they got the right flu. Right. But mRNA is different. And this could be very important for someone listening right now who is very queasy about getting a shot because they don't know what they're shooting into the system. What should they know? That's exactly right. So it's important to know that traditionally not not these vaccines, but traditionally vaccines, shots included, as you say, either a killed version of the virus itself, a watered down version of it, attenuated, it's called. So you have some version of the vaccine. And it's true of all traditional uh, vaccines, um, polio, et cetera. And historically, there was some percentage of people who unfortunately got the disease that they were trying to protect. And the whole idea of vaccines is to educate, to teach the immune system. And so historically, say, all right, I'm going to put in the vaccine a piece of the virus and the immune system is going to have an experience, it's going to have an education, and it's going to know when it sees it for the real time. Ah, we know how to fight it off. With these vaccines, they're very different. So mRNA basically is a message. It's called uh, M, the M is for a messenger. And we all have mRNA in us. It's how our proteins that, that we depend on are created. Basically, the um, um, DNA doesn't go into the cell. It goes DNA to mRNA to uh, creates protein. That's sort of the basics of biology. And People, scientists, entrepreneurs, um, venture capitalists always said, well, okay, if mRNA is so important and mRNA can create naturally, we're talking about naturally creates proteins in the body. What if we could create these mRNAs, these molecules in the lab? And it was always like this holy grail. Well, yeah, of course, if we could figure it out, we could create, we could make the body into its own manufacture, its own um, vaccine or even drug uh, manufacture in our own body. So it was always like the hope. And the skeptics always said, nah, there's no way you can get mRNA all the way into the cell because it's chopped up so quickly. That's the the, the fascinating thing about mRNA. Some people are worried that it's going to affect their DNA and it's going to be in our – no, it gets chopped up almost instantly, and that's why people never wanted to work with mRNA. So it took years and years of entrepreneurship and and innovation and stubbornness on the part of researchers that I write about in my book to finally figure out a way to create mRNA in the lab. It's called recombinant mRNA. Put it in a vaccine and get it all the way into our body, and, and then it does get chopped up really quickly by the enzymes, but it lasts long enough to teach our body to create a protein. In this case, it's the spike protein. Create a protein that teaches the body's immune system. Ah, next time I see that spike protein, I'm going to go fight it off. So we have Moderna and Pfizer working with mRNA. What's Johnson & Johnson doing? So Johnson & Johnson and uh, this group in England, Oxford University, along with uh, AstraZeneca, they use a virus and they say, okay, we're going to put the gene for, in this case, the spike protein, onto a virus, put it in a vaccine, and that virus is going to carry this genetic information, these genetic instructions, into the body's cell. And you say to yourself, well, wait, why do I want to put a virus into my body? And the answer is, this virus is not harmful. They've taken out the ingredients such that it doesn't spread. It just gets, and and viruses are really good at getting into the cells, and then it disappears. So that's their approach. It's um, effective. It's not quite as effective as mRNA, but it's effective. And um, I would 
take the J&J um, in a heartbeat. So um, that's another approach I write about in, in my book, and it's another one that took years and years to get right. All right, when we come back, uh, with the moment where it reaches market, when, they, when did they know it was going to be successful, and what was the feeling uh, around the country, and what is it like now? If anyone can make heads or tails of it or offer a great um, uh, hypothesis, it's Greg Zuckerman. His book is now out as of today. It's called, um, uh, it's called, it's right here, Greg Zuckerman, A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're here to discuss a monumental national achievement. From the instant the coronavirus invaded our shores, we raced into action to develop a safe and effective vaccine at breakneck speed. It would normally take five years, six years, seven years, or even more. In order to achieve this goal, we harnessed the full power of government, the genius of American scientists, and the might of American industry to save millions and millions of lives all over the world. We're just days away from authorization from the FDA, and we're pushing them hard, at which point we will immediately begin mass distribution. Before Operation Warp Speed, the typical time frame for development and approval, as you know, uh, could be infinity. And we were very, very happy that uh, we were able to get things done at a level that nobody has ever seen before. And he's not over-exaggerating for one point, really. President Trump making the announcement in December of 2020, they got a vaccine. They got two of them. They would eventually have three of them and might be another one coming. That is not news to Greg Zuckerman. Along the way, taking a bet on the vaccine and taking a bet that it would be a good story. Greg, that's what you, you were betting that they were going to get a vaccine. So you were learning about the technology behind it, the science behind it, the biology behind it. And that moment in December, what were you thinking? Oh, I was happy for the world, happy for myself and my family, happy for my loved ones. Um, my uncle passed away of COVID. Um, I know people with long COVID. Um, you know, we've all gone through a really difficult period, and I think we're too close to it to, to, to appreciate that these vaccines, and I know to some people they're controversial, but to me they're just an American invention and American a reflection of American exceptionalism and, and genius. And we don't give enough credit to, to Operation Warp Speed, to the scientists, to the, the financiers, the American financiers behind it. It's a real American success story. So you said the Pfizer and Moderna, the heads are foreign-born. But they said they had to do it in America. Why? Yeah, I spoke to both of them. Uh, Stefan Bensel, he's from Marseille in France, uh, thick accent, uh, Uger Sahin, uh, born in Turkey, and he lives in Germany right now, and his company is Germany. And yet they both told me that these vaccines, the Moderna ones and the Pfizer-BioNTech ones, could not have been produced without America, without American investors. You know, we forget we've got um, the, the ecosystem here, capitalism in this country will step up and take risk that you can't get anywhere else. You could not do this in Europe. There's no money for these kinds of companies with no earnings, with only a hope of developing something down the road years in advance. And frankly, there's American venture capital, there's American investors, American stock market. And, and these companies and these executives all told me, Greg, we could not have done this without America. And we could not have done this without the help of these investors and, and, and the scientists from America. Are you surprised we quickly got about 50, 60 percent up. We seem to be stuck around 70 percent of the country getting two shots and getting ready to go. Are you surprised at some skepticism? And what would you say to skeptics listening right now? So I would say, and I, and I try to emphasize this. We're not doctors, but you, you, you might as well be after this book you just wrote. Yeah, I, I'm no doctor whatsoever, but um, I talk to um, scientists and I talk to 
people that are not political. I really try to emphasize people that are just experienced. And the experience, the time, the years that went into these vaccines needs to be appreciated. And the, and the, the remarkable effectiveness also needs to be appreciated. A shot to save the world. Greg Zuckerman has done it again. Pick it up. It's real-time history. Good job, Greg. Thank you, Brian. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.